Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 15, 1 through 6, and Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood. He will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And this is from Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Praise be to God. Today we begin a new sermon series for the winter season. The winter season is bounded by Christmas on the one side and by the season of Lent on the other. And because Easter is a little bit earlier than normal this year, occurring on March 31st, it means that the season of Lent, which is six weeks prior to Easter, begins a little bit early too. So the winter season is, uh, oftentimes we think of January and February being the winter season in terms of the church year, but uh, this is a six-week series because in mid-February we start the season of Lent. So in this six weeks, what are we studying? Well, we're studying the, this concept of friendship with God and the power and potential of friendship to be the means by which the differences between us can be bridged. So, we won't be talking a whole lot about the type of friendship that is, hey, I'm looking for a friend who is exactly like me. And I'm looking for that one friend who I can just, you know, have that friendship. They're exactly like me. They don't have any different perspectives. They don't have any different background. And uh, wouldn't it be great if I had that friend? Um, we can have conversations about that kind of friend. But in this sermon series, we won't have a lot of those kind of conversations, primarily because in the scriptures that we will look at, 
we will be encouraged to consider how God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has engaged in friendship with us. Now, I don't know if you thought about it very recently, but we're not exactly, exactly like God. Now, we're made in God's image, but there's a big difference between being God, the Holy One, Creator of the universe, eternal, immortal, God-only-wise, and being Kurt, or Dave, or Tao, or Diane, or Karen. We are people. God is the God of the universe. And yet we sang today a song that claimed that we are friends of God. That somehow God and us have a relationship, a closeness, that can be described in terms of friendship. We're going to explore that. What basis is there for us to talk about being friends with God? And then consider how the way that God has come to be with us and bridged a significant gap. God might be empowering us to engage with others across differences as well. In this series, we have a book that we will be reading by a man named John Perkins. If you ever Google his name, there's actually another author with that name. It's a fairly common name, as you could imagine. And so on all of the books that, that our John Perkins writes, he is John M. Perkins. And so you'll want to make sure you, you uh, put that M in there on your Google searches. But John Perkins... Uh, wrote a book called He Calls Me Friend. I would dare say that, that it's probably inspired by the words of the song that we sang this morning. But John Perkins wrote this book as a follow-up to his book on the topic of racial reconciliation. John Perkins, an African-American man, um, who has a lot of significant bridging friendships with people who are different from himself, different race, different uh, uh, background, or the way he was raised, or the way others are raised, different perspectives, and yet a remarkable capacity to be friends with those people across those differences. Um, in a remarkable way. So, John Perkins wrote a book called One Blood. And we actually made that the focus of a sermon series in Lent three years ago. And in the, at the beginning of this book, He Calls Me Friend, Perkins says that this book, He Calls Me Friend, is his follow-up to that book. So, so it kind of answers the question of, okay, now that we've looked at God's perspective on racial reconciliation and that we are all one, you know, the, the, we explored this during Lent three years ago, this, 
this sense of the fact that we have one blood uh, as human beings, and, and we, so we have that unity, that fundamental unity um, that ethnicity and race do, does not deny. Um, and yet also in Christ, we are drawn together, we are reconciled with one another and with God through the one blood of Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for all people on the cross and was raised to new life to give them eternal hope and to reconcile them to God and to one another. So the question would be, well, what should we do about that? And John Perkins' cry, his, his hope for us is that we would find people who are different from us and be their friend. And be their friend. So, a few words about John Perkins. Uh, John Perkins was, uh, was born and raised in the American South during a time when it was uh, not a comfortable place uh, to live as an African-American young man. Um, and he felt the oppression of racism in that time, in that place. And he shares this in his autobiography um, titled Let Justice Roll Down. He wanted to get out of there so bad, and he did. And he went out to California, Southern California. There was uh, opportunity to work uh, there. And so he, he ended up you know, meeting his wife of many, many years, Vera May. John and Vera May Perkins uh, have been in ministry together for many years. And uh, this was in kind of... Po- post-World War II times, early, early 1950s. And, uh, and John Perkins met the Lord. He had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and he met the Lord in the context of, of, a, of, of a largely white evangelical Christian ministry. And so uh, John, from the very beginning of his life in Christ, he began walking in friendship with people of another race. And that had a foundational impact on his life. And dare I say, that bridging of that racial divide because of common faith in Christ has transformed tens of thousands of lives through the personal witness and the ministry of John Perkins. Led by the Lord... He was called to go back to this place he said he would never return to, his home in Mississippi. And he developed a ministry there that uh, for decades upon decades, it's still in existence, um, and it served the poor. It, during the before, even at the early part of the civil rights movement in the late 1950s and early 1960s, John Perkins was there, and he stood up for um, people's dignity in the face of, of racism in Mississippi. And, and he was beaten, and he was jailed just for doing that. And that's part of his testimony. But through the, through the years, he has invited many people of all different backgrounds to come and to learn how to be a part of God's work of community development, working with the poor, and of racial reconciliation. 
when he and Vera Mae retired, they retired and went back to Southern California, and in their retirement, started a whole new inner city ministry. It was called the Harambe Christian Family Center in Pasadena. And um, that was a place where when I was in high school at West, in West Seattle, I attended Westside Presbyterian Church, and uh, our youth and young adults went on a mission trip to serve at the Harambe Center. We showed a film. I remember a film, and it was a film. It was reel-to-reel film. Uh, it was a documentary made about John Perkins' life. And, and so... Uh, there was a, 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 a time in the, the 1980s when, when, uh, when John Perkins became a, a very important person and teacher to us in that particular congregation. When I was in college at Whitworth College, a few years later, I did an independent study one January and studied inner city ministries up and down the West Coast. And uh, we did we spent some time in Seattle, we spent, spent some time in Portland and Eugene, Oregon, we spent some time in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, both in San Francisco and in San Jose, and then went to Southern California, and the ministry that, that I was there to, to learn about, to investigate, was Harambe Christian Family Center, led by John M. Perkins. And he, was a, he had published a number of books, he had received numerous honorary doctorate degrees, by that time, I was warmly welcomed into their fellowship, into their family. Most of the Perkins' child, many children continued to serve in the ministry, and their gift of, and ministry of hospitality uh, is legendary. And, and I remember, to me, I just was in awe of Dr. Perkins, and uh, I was staying there at the center with his family, getting to know uh, his son Derek, his daughter Deborah, and one, it was, I needed to find some time with Dr. Perkins to interview him. He was very busy, but there was one day in which he had a, uh, a community meeting at the Jackie Robinson Community Center in Pasadena, and he needed a ride, and he asked me, hey, why don't you interview me while we drive to and from this community meeting, but you'll also learn something by being there at that meeting of community leaders. And so, so John M. Perkins got into the passenger seat of my car, and we drove uh, from the center to the Jackie Robinson Center, and uh, we, I saw him interact with other community leaders, African-American community leaders in Pasadena, and then we drove home. We spent some more time in his office, uh, and I got all my questions answered and, and got an A in that independent study class. <laughs> so that was, that was a really important thing. But, but ever since that moment, I've, I've continued to read Dr. Perkins' books. He's continued to write. He's continued to speak. Uh, Seattle Pacific University uh, has had a special relationship with Dr. Perkins and has named their Center for Reconciliation uh, after John M. Perkins. And so he's made regular pilgrimages back to Seattle. And you don't really have to go far to find people who feel like John Perkins is their best friend. <laughs> because he had a remar- has a remarkable uh, capacity to make people feel like they are his friend. Uh, he's so welcoming and so gracious. And uh, this by, from a man who very early in life, in his childhood and in his adult life, 
was abused and beaten by people who share the same skin color as myself. And that's a great testimony to the power of God to bring about reconciliation across those divides. He is a walking illustration of what it means when you are a friend of God, how you can be a part of bridging divides through friendship. Well, we'll have more opportunity to share in this sermon series about Dr. Perkins, about what he says in this book. We do encourage you to get a copy of this book and to be reading along with it. He calls me friend. You'll also be hearing stories during this sermon series from the mission field. Um, we'll, there's a book that was recently published uh, by one of the finest missiologists of the 20th century about how Christian friendships have bridged distances in Christian mission. One thing that is true if you ever get involved in mission work is you can assume difference, right? There's cultural distance. Some of you, I even talked with someone uh, last week about living overseas uh, in a country of another culture. Um, and, and people speak a different language. They might have a different religion. Um, you're immersed in that. And so you're making friends. You know, the friends you make are all across some kind of difference. And that's true for all of those who are engaged in cross-cultural mission work. And we have a great deal of, of uh, history here at North Creek around mission uh, and so I think you'll appreciate uh, what this mission scholar has to share, these stories of missionaries who have bridged great distances and divides culturally through friendship. But we have this conversation about friendship and its power. Uh, John Perkins, in the subtitle of his book, talks about the power of friendship in a lonely world. A lonely world. Does that resonate with you? Do you know people who are lonely? Do you know personally what it's like to be lonely, to feel isolated, alone? We're going to explore that too. There's a particular book that I'm reading right now that, that, uh, that came out just uh, before the pandemic, actually, and, and we'll be looking at some insights from that book. But we'll also talk about, today, a, a book that took a scholarly but more, also a popular look at the kind of the state of community and relationships in the United States of America almost a generation ago, more than 20 years ago. Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam published a book called Bowling Alone. And this was a bestseller. Some of you might have read this book. Um, in it... Putnam basically presents the finding of a study that he did that, that kind of confirmed what we all have been noticing, that our involvement with others in community in the United States is starting to wane. It's starting to be less and less and less, especially when you compare it to what was natural and assumed back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And in fact, the, the title of this book, Bowling Alone, has to do with bowling. 
Yes, that kind of bowling. The one that you need special shoes for. The one with the heavy ball. And some of you remember this. I had to read this book because I, I didn't live in the 50s or the, only two years, a year and a half in the 60s. And, uh, but, but as Robert Putnam describes it, the number of bowling leagues in the 50s and 60s in the United States would blow your mind. Some of you are nodding. Do you remember that? He also talks about, yeah, there you go. He also talks about bridge clubs. Now, to be honest, this whole thing about bridge, like, okay, we're talking about bridges. <laughs> this is a bridge for me. Like, seriously, honestly, don't, I don't mean to offend anybody, but it says, I, I don't even know how to play bridge. I've never participated in a bridge game. Is it called a game? Uh, and, but, but then I started learning, oh no, bridge was big. It was huge, right? Where are the bridge clubs now? Senior centers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's becoming, it, it just kind of dropped off the face of the earth, kind of. And, and bowling leagues as well. Some people bowl, that is true. But it's not quite the way it was when everyone bowled. Now, the representation I realize that some of us of a younger generation have is like, is like the Flintstones are the, are, the, are the cartoon, they are the cartoon picture of 1950s America, even though it's based in prehistoric times. And you remember, you know, Fred and Barney, they bowled together. And Fred, remember how he did it? He approached the bowling with his, on his toes. Do you remember that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty fancy bowling there. But... Here's where it touches uh, an organization like the church, though, because Putnam was using those examples of the way that, that community interaction was changing, uh, maybe deteriorating as well. And he also studied community organizations, like fraternal organizations, and the membership in those, which also, since that time in the 40s and 50s, has precipitously declined. Some of those fraternal organizations are barely keeping their operations going. And he also looked at the church and other communities of faith, their houses of worship. And what did he see? He saw a great drop-off in participation. There are a lot fewer people in America, even people who claim faith in Christ, who regularly participate in fellowship and relationship with others in community. And we're living that. You know, I'm standing here preaching here at North Creek Presbyterian Church. And we've experienced that. There were, there, there were times when North Creek's experience, in, in a way, as a new church development in the early 1980s, was a baby boomer response to the church decline that was happening. Existing churches were finding it difficult to incorporate baby boomers and their families into their life. And so the church grew through exercises in new church development like this one. Praise the Lord. Give, give, give that whole episode a round of applause. No, seriously. The lives that were touched, very powerful and, 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 uh, and so much a part of this church's identity uh, and legacy. Um, but we even, as, as this church has matured, we've seen uh, a growth, you know, when we built our facility, and, 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 uh, and yet we've seen some decline as well. And then, and then COVID hit, 
And then, and then we realized that, okay, a lot of community organizations weren't able to meet. People weren't able to connect in the same way. And we're all trying to, to kind of just understand where we are with that. All in a time when loneliness is increasing. From a socially scientific perspective, it is statistically increasing. But I was intrigued when I read Putnam's work, Bowling Alone. He talked about social capital. Capital, like money, right? That can, that can build things, that can start businesses. Um, there's social capital as well that can build relationships. And one of the types of social capital that Putnam talked about, that he wanted to encourage people to engage in in the United States of America, in American society, was something that he called bridging social capital. And what that does is that it, it's, it's our ability to get into relationships with people who are different from us, different status in society, different neighborhoods, different places where we live. Um, for instance, it would be to take, like in Mill Creek, in general Mill Creek where we are planted uh, is, is a fairly you know, middle-class to upper-middle-class community in general. Um, if we just kept our, if this church just kept our relationships with everyone who was like, like us there, we wouldn't be doing a lot of bridging with people who are different than us. But you know, here in this church, we haven't just remained in kind of a Mill Creek cocoon. We've developed a relationship with Greater Trinity Missionary Baptist Church in South Everett. Now, the, the, uh, the, the uh, socioeconomic status of those who live in South Everett is a little bit different than Mill Creek, isn't it? And we've gotten to know people of, of different, different uh, walks of life, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different race in our work in the church. And we'll continue to be doing that. But that bridging... The bridging power of friendship. It's something that happened in my life. Um, I'll share with you just this personal story. Um, going back to my, the church I grew up in, Westside Presbyterian Church. Uh, I grew up in West Seattle. Uh, there's a lot of different socioeconomic statuses that live in West Seattle. Um, I was not in one of the high ones. Let's just put it that way. We were a working class uh, family. My dad worked as a millwright for Boeing. So through that job, he was able to support a family of a wife and five children. And, and you know, we received, sometimes we received uh, assistance, like, you know, lunch assistance because of the income level that my dad was at. Um, hardworking. And our needs were provided for. And we had, we, had, we had things like medical care and dental care because of the union, okay? So I, I carry that with me, that, that people fought for the fact that, that, that my dad as a, as a laborer had kids at home. That's how I was able to be healthy growing up. Well, the church that we were a part of had a lot of people of a higher socioeconomic status, and I came from a family where, where no one in my family, my, neither of my parents completed college. But when I was in high school, I had assignments to interview. When we were studying vocation, I had to interview someone who was in a vocation. And 
And so I was in a, at a dilemma. So I can't just stay within the limits of the relationships within my family because I had aspirations beyond that. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to enter into a profession. And it was through my relationship with adults at my church that I found people who had gone to college and who were in a profession. So in the church, there were people of different socioeconomic status. I was down here, but there were people who were up here. And I knew who they were because Mr. Porter was my Sunday school teacher. And I knew he was an engineer. By the way, I didn't go into engineering. But, but I had that conversation with him. And I learned what he did. And I learned what kind of schooling that he had to engage in. And it opened a whole new world to me. And that was a world that was opened up to me because we were connected, we were bridged in the church together. Now this bridging that can happen in the church, bridging people from different backgrounds and walks of life, is something rooted in who we are in Christ. In Isaiah 41.8, we read today, Israel, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Abraham is God's friend. And any, friend, any descendant of Abraham is a friend of God. I think we can take that by implication. Friend in Hebrew here is ohab, which is actually one of the words used in the Old Testament for love. So most translations translate this Hebrew term friend, Abraham my friend. But it's a, it's a deeper kind of friendship than most of us would first think about. It's covenant friendship. It's how you describe when you, when you have that special relationship that has a sense of permanence to it. Let's look at Abraham and one of the key covenant moments that developed this friendship between God and Abraham. Genesis 15. We read the first six verses of Genesis 15. This is one of the three covenant snapshots in Genesis where God comes to Abram and establishes a relationship with Abram. And eventually Abram is referred to as Abraham. And in these encounters, we learn things about this relationship, this covenant that God is making with Abraham. We learn that it's about protection. There's a promise of protection. Uh, God says to Abram, I am your shield. In a vulnerable world, how important is it to know that God has your back? Provision. Abraham responds to God and says, God, what can you give me? Abram is needing something from God. And in this relationship, God gives, provides. And one of the things God provides is a promise. A promise of descendants, promise of a legacy, promise of a future, even in his isolation. And he's been promised this before, a few chapters ago in the narrative. And he and Sarai do not yet have an heir. They, they want to have a child, a son. But they do not have a son, and they're getting older and older. 
But God comes to him in verse 5 of Genesis 15 and says, Abram, look up into the sky. Count the stars. As many stars as you see, that's how many descendants you will have. And that is the core covenant between God and people. And that's the covenant that we as the church are grafted into through the work of Jesus Christ, this new covenant that's built and expressed in the old covenant. And it says in verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The phrase he believed has this sense of trust and reliance. Those are friendship terms. A lot of times we think of belief as, as just an intellectual assent to particular ideas. But as the Apostle Paul teaches us in the New Testament, belief is more about trust. It's a relationship term. When we believe in God, we trust in God. We place ourselves in God's care. And that's what's happening between Abram and God. There's a relationship, a covenant that's being established, a friendship. So let's return to Isaiah 41, 9 and 10. In verse 9, the Lord says to God's people, Abraham's descendants, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Friendship is voluntary. God chooses to be in friendship with you and me. And then these words that... that, uh, I've learned from a number of you that this is a very, very special verse to you. Isaiah 41.10. This is the so what of being in covenant, being in friendship with God. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Friends, friendship with God means courage in facing the fears in a vulnerable world. But it also means a supportive presence in a world where we can feel isolated and alone. That verse means so much to us when we are feeling alone. God comes to us and reminds us through these words from Isaiah, I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Even when we do not have the strength to stand, God upholds us through his strength. That's the power of friendship with God. How do we know this about our relationship with God? How can we remember on a regular basis that we have this kind of relationship with God? Because there's so many things we encounter in this life that try to tell us a different story. Amen? Might be that voice inside that says, I'm not worthy of that. It seems too good to be true. Maybe it's because Someone else has said that to you that you're not worthy. Maybe it's just a natural consequence of of the sin that you found yourself stuck in 
And you're thinking, well, surely if this sin is, is something God does not smile upon, surely God has rejected me too. When that couldn't be further from the truth. What reminds us of our friendship with God by Jesus' decision are the sacraments. In the Presbyterian Church, we have two that we share with the church universal. I can walk right over here to the baptismal font. The waters of baptism were how we're initiated into this relationship with God, this covenant relationship with God. We are, when the waters of baptism touch us, we are claimed in this friendship. And then in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are regularly reminded of the covenant. The covenant of salvation that reconciles us to God in spite of our sin, that through the God-provided forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that we can be reconciled to God in spiritual friendship. We are covenant friends of God. May we be reminded at the table of this fact. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. Amen.